let's say you and I are going to go create a widget selling business. We can and should probably use like Nello, Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, like one of those good charging order protection states and use those choice of law clauses and venues to govern internal disputes and affairs of the business. But again, when it comes to real estate and LLCs acting as holding companies for the rental properties, that is not a business. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck. And on this podcast, you are going to learn exactly how to be a successful real estate investor step by step by me interviewing some of the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the entire country. And there's also going to be a bunch of episodes where I'm just going to individually talk about real estate deals that I've done that have been successful, some deals that haven't been successful. I'm going to talk about my weekly real estate investing lessons, stuff that I've learned from the trenches that you can learn for free on this podcast. So if you're looking to level up your game as a real estate investor or become a real estate investor, this is the podcast to listen to. So if you do get value from the show today, please do me a favor and leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on so we can get this message in front of more people. And without further ado, welcome to the show. All right, Brian, welcome to the show, my friend. I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks, Greg, for having me on. And, you know, this is going to be a lot of fun. And we have a lot of important changes in the law to go over. And I think we'll do a lot of myth busting and breaking some misconceptions here. And if we can cover it all, I got a new book that came out. It's a bestseller, Overexposed. So, you know, a lot of this stuff that we're going to be going over will be covered in my book in great detail. Perfect. Well, we'll definitely talk about that at the end. And we'll let the listeners know how they can pick up a copy of that. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, how did you get into being an asset protection attorney. Yeah, most attorneys, I think that come into asset protection and there's not a lot of them that exclusively do this, go probably through like the estate protecting themselves for the case it's just to settle or get thrown out or to completely have gross judgments against them and lose everything. And so I just looked at this, I'm like, there has to be a way to get ahead of all of this. And so I started researching it on the trial side of things. And over the years, just started reading through what worked, what didn't work, what was a bunch of BS. And once I kind of found like the right formula for protection, I joined up with my affiliate and switched my practice over from pure trial work to, you know, mainly just high-end, strong asset protection. Sure. Now that makes sense, especially you like seeing it as a trial lawyer, like all these people with, you know, people work hard for these assets, you know, and especially real estate, you know, you got to qualify with the bank and, you know, everyone talks about all the upside with real estate, the depreciation, the appreciation. But, you know, I, as a landlord myself, like I know deep down inside how scary it can be when you have 5, 10, 20, 40 tenants, one colossal disaster, you know, could ruin your whole wealth. A lot of things can happen. Yeah, real estate's very litigious. And, you know, it's the business side of things, the victimization side, you know, of society, people falling off roofs. I mean, there's just a lot of ways that you can get sued in real estate. And, you know, unfortunately, like you said, one big lawsuit, you know, can clean you out. 100% but not if you have the right setup, which we'll get into later on, you know? So let's start with the base layer. Like, you know, I heard you on Bigger Pockets. That's how I discovered you. So let's talk about some of the myths of the LLC because a lot of people who don't understand asset protection at a high level, they just think as long as they have an LLC, they're good to go. And obviously that's not true. Yeah, so I think one of the really big misconceptions is just based on human nature. 
you know, like you don't need to do anything until after you get sued. But at that point, you're just way too far down the rabbit hole. And there's a case that I mentioned generally when I set the scene, the solo case, and that kind of goes towards the timing of asset protection. Like if you're coming to me after the fact, after the lawsuit, after the judgment, that's just way, way too late. That's just going to be basically fraud. And it's like trying to get car insurance after you had your car accident to cover the accident or house insurance to cover your house burning down after your house burned down. Like it's not going to happen. But a lot of people are willing to gamble and not do anything until it's too late. And so they just don't perceive the risk. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of things happen. They get sued or their neighbor gets sued or a family member gets sued and like, oh my God, you know, it's, it's a complete wake up call. But if it happens to you, like, again, there's nothing I can do. I'd have to avoid that lawsuit or plan around it. And so then they, like I said, there's nothing we can do if you're already down that rabbit hole. Or people think, you know, another misconception is that their insurance will always cover them, you know, which it won't. It's important to have and you need it and you need good insurance. I'm an advocate for insurance, but we're getting more and more claims that are radically in excess of their insurance coverage. So being underinsured is actually a big problem. And a good example of this is I recently got a call from a potential client who is a medical doctor and also is investing in real estate who's being sued through her work for $20 million medical malpractice claim for loss of earning capacity. So that's well above any amount, you know, that and the average person is going to carry or even a doctor generally like two to $4 million in malpractice coverage. So where's the excess money going to come from if she loses that lawsuit? Her assets. So yeah. that's where action planning comes into play. Or people think that having an umbrella policy is good enough. Like, well, I got insurance and an umbrella policy, then LLC, I'm good. And they think that an umbrella policy just means that it's going to cover everything else, but it doesn't. It just provides excess or more coverage with the same escape clauses of insurance. Like they don't cover you for fraud or intentional misrepresentations. And that's generally how insurance companies argue out of paying big claims because every lawsuit now that's filed is always going to have an allegation of fraud or intent. And so once that happens, and it can be like sending an email, they're out, you know, Josie out the door, they're not going to be covering it. Their basically claim is we're not going to cover you for intentional wrongdoings. And if you think that we're wrong, go ahead and sue us. So people need to understand the limitations of insurance. And that insurance really just provides capital to fight. And that capital is going to get eat up during litigation, and then you're still going to have to cover the claim. Or another big misconception what we'll break down when we talk about trust is that they think that their family estate plan known as a revocable living trust is going to protect them, which they can't. They aren't designed to because not all trusts are the same. You know, just like we have different flavors of ice cream, your revocable living trust or your estate plan only comes into effect when you die to avoid probate, not to protect you while you're living from people suing you. So we need to make sure that you have the actual right type of trust set up while you're living to protect you from creditors and predatory individuals coming after you. And then we got the final really big misconception that I think we're going to, you know, tear into is LLCs. And people have recently thought that the LLC is like a one-stop silver bullet and it's not. They missed the first word, first letter that limited. You know, they tell you this just straight up in their name. But people are now wrongfully thinking that the LLC is this magic pill. So yeah. we need to go back to reality and say, hey, you know, like there's tons and decades of case law on this of how they're easily pierced, which I'll talk about. But it's not a one-stop ball, throw everything in an LLC. You're just basically buying a false sense of security. Yeah, no, and that's where I see a lot of people make the mistake. Like, I'm not going to mention his name, but I got a very good friend who I keep telling to call an asset protection lawyer. I'm like, dude, you got these properties and LLCs in your personal name, and not a lot of them have mortgages on them. And I'm like, you should set this thing up to where if you got sued, like 
you have some protection because even with an LLC, right, Brian, if you screw one thing up, like you co-mingle funds or, or something that can pierce that veil, all of a sudden the judge could say, hey, this is not even a valid entity anymore. And now you're going to get sued personally. Correct. And I'll break it down. But really what you want to do, like when you're creating these structures is layer them out. Like we were talking about before, how I talk about clothing with an asset protection plan. And when you're creating these structures, just think about winter at the end of the day. You know, when it comes to asset protection, we're going to be wearing different layers, you know, just like when we dress to go outside on a ski trip. That first layer is your base layer, that thin shirt that's going to sit on your skin. This is what we're talking about, the LLCs. This is the starting point, like asset protection 101. You know, like, and then we just build layers from there. And these LLCs will come into play again, like we are just starting out, you have no assets or maybe zero to three units. Your net worth is below $250,000 generally. You're just like a greenhorn getting started in investing. That's where you're at, LLC and insurance. Yeah. Then it grow. We're growing, we're adding more assets, and we hit that four-unit mark or we're investing in like multiple states. Maybe we have like two or three now LLCs. You're around that five hundred to $700,000 net equity mark. You want a mid-layer, just like uh, clothing. It's a thicker sweatshirt, merino wool sweater for us guys, a cardigan for you ladies. That's a management company. You'll hear some people use Wyoming LLCs. We use limited partnerships, but we really don't have to break the bank, but we want to start layering as we go. And then when you hit around that 1 million net worth mark, this is your outer shell waterproof layer. This is going to keep you nice and dry and warm when the weather is really bad, meaning a doomsday lawsuit, just something really bad that's happening. That's an asset protection trust and specifically a hybrid trust. But the reason we're layering, by laying, we're now more flexible. Like we can adjust to make yourself more comfortable. We can take the outer shell layer off, the inner layer, the mid layer. We want the same thing with our asset protection plan. And so when we're going about this, just realize LLCs are the base layer is the starting point. And there's a lot of weaknesses in them. If we can break those down, if you want, because I know you're talking about, you know, bell piercing, but just realize LLCs, then limited partnerships, then trust where you fall in that matrix. It's just going to depend on what you own, how much you own, what your day job is, kind of basically what your profile looks like. Yeah. The amount of risk and all that, like a doctor versus just a guy who has a couple rentals and he's an engineer. So let me ask you this about the limited partnership, because I've heard of that before. Here, this is a little bit of a complicated question, I guess. So let's say that I own property yeah. in New York, which I do. And I open up a limited partnership out of Wyoming because everyone talks about Wyoming for some reason. If the LLCs in New York that own the properties are owned by that Wyoming partnership, is there even any protection in Wyoming? Because it seems like the law would be in New York, right? You know, it's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, it's kind of a double-sided question here. So one, I wouldn't create the limited partnership in Wyoming. I'd create it in Arizona. And the reason is Arizona is the only state that allows to do what's called a unilateral withdrawal demand. And it's codified under US or ARS section 29-333. And what that means is when we add all three layers, right? So basically LLCs flowing into the limited partnership. The limited partnership is managed by you and owned by your trust. The trust that owns the limited partnership can say, hey, limited partnership, I own you. There's a predefined event of duress, meaning this massive lawsuit. I demand all the assets that you own and I'm disconnecting from you. It's the only state by statute that actually allows you to do that. And so when we're looking at different states, that's why we're picking Arizona versus Wyoming. To the second part of your question is, all right, New York property, New York LLC, why are we using like an Arizona or a Wyoming limited partnership? 
is because at that point in time, it is not a holding company, right? So you're right to your first part, the lawsuit's going to go through New York because New York's going to be the state of jurisdiction. That's where the property's at. That's where the injury happened. That's where the plaintiff is at. Yeah. So it's New York law that applies. Whereas the lawsuit originate is through that LLC if that's, you know, if they're injured on the property. So it's going to be that New York LLC and you getting sued through New York law, which yeah. is the starting point. We're not buying Arizona or Wyoming law. But what we can do now is use the charging order protection of the limited partnership because it's now a business. Like that's an actual business now. It's not just a holding company. For example, mm -hmm. we're creating LLCs for real estate. We're not using them as a business entity. We are just using them as a holding company, yes. which is an extension of you, right? And so when we create the next layer, the management company, it's not just a holding company. It's actually a, an entity that you're doing business through, you're contracting through, you're talking the vendors through. You're managing more assets through. So it actually has something that is doing. It's not just an empty holding company. That's an extension of yourself. Yeah, it's like an active operation. Like it's doing the property management. It's doing the rent collections. That makes a lot of sense. So then we can actually get the benefit of like those charging order protection states at that second layer. It's not at the first layer that we're doing it at. It's at the second layer. That makes a lot of sense. Because if you just use an LLC as like a holding company, it's basically not. It's, yeah, it's worthless. And like, I'll just skip down to it. It's this 2023 Supreme Court case. It's named Mallory versus Norfolk. And here the Supreme Court upheld this Pennsylvania statute that forces companies to here is like base litigation within the borders that it's registered to do business in. So I, I want to repeat that because it's really important. It forces companies to face litigation within the borders that it's registered to do business in. This case now is going to open the door for other states to adopt similar registration requirements. So now state courts are permitted to exercise jurisdiction over these registered foreign corporations that let's say are holding your real estate. So that's why at the end of the day, we're using the LLC in the state that the asset is at. Because if I start using other states, it's not going to do you any good. And now yeah. we have a Supreme Court case that's talking about this. And another really big distinction that I don't hear many people talking about, I think it's just because people are trial lawyers, is tort and personal injury liability, right? Sadly, what people don't realize is that real estate is just different. And they confuse business law and contract law with tort law and personal injury liability. When we're setting up a business and creating a contract, we can and we should include like choice of law clauses and venue provisions. We see these in every contract that we sign all the time, right? Like this is the state that you have to sue us through if there's a dispute. But when we're setting up, you know, a business to sell widgets, like let's say you and I are going to go create a widget selling business, we can and should probably use like Nello, Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, like one of those good charging order protection states and use those choice of law clauses and venues to govern. Here it is right here, right? Air quotes, internal disputes and affairs of the business. And let's say that again, right? Hit, hit to govern internal disputes and affairs of the business. But again, when it comes to real estate and LLCs acting as holding companies for the rental properties, that is not a business. When a person's getting injured on your property and they sue your LLC or they sue you for damages due to wrongful doings and negligence, you know, like big legal fancy words, that's not a business dispute. That's a tort liability because we're talking about wrongful acts and infringements on rights. And so there really is no bail protection on that because it's not internal disputes of the business. Yeah, no, that makes sense because it's completely, yeah, you're just using that other state as like a kind of like a fake crutch to think that, oh, if I get sued in New York, oh, Wyoming laws are going to save my ass. That's not the case. Correct. And you're talking about like bail piercing and you mentioned a couple of them. The seminal case on bail piercing is actually a California case called Associated Vendors Incorporated versus Auckland Meat Company. It came down in 1962. The Court of Appeals 
provided a list of 20 reasons for justifying piercing your veil. I'm not going to list them all, right? It's just go look it up yourself, but I'm going to name five of them, all right? One, you mentioned one, commingling of funds or other assets. Two, using funds for something other than corporate uses. Three, failure to maintain adequate corporate records or confusion of the records. Four, the use of a corporation as a mere shell that we've been kind of talking about. And the fifth one, the most vague term, undercapitalization. And I'm sure just off of those five, our listeners can probably check off the box on two or three of them. A hundred percent, hundred percent, especially the co-mingling. Like you use your business credit card to get groceries one day by accident. Now all of a sudden the whole structure screwed up. Because yeah. the point for these listeners is like, you know, you got to obviously pay attention to this because, you know, everything is great until you get sued, right? And I actually had, Brian, this this is a, not a rental lawsuit, but long story short, a lot of people talk about, and then we'll get into the trust stuff because that's yeah. really interesting. But I had a personal scenario happen to me where I was flipping a property and I was in contract to buy it. Yeah. And we were sending a contractor over to the house because it was vacant to do an inspection to make sure that everything made sense from a budget standpoint. And the contractor went inside, he went through the door, he turned something on, he turned it off. The house caught fire and burned down to the ground. And I got a letter from the attorney who was representing the seller. And then I had to get an attorney and I had to obviously, you know, defend myself. It ended up working out like, cause it wasn't our fault. And we proved the evidence with yeah. the fire department. But like one thing like that, like could completely screw you over. Cause then the seller was trying to sue me for the damages between the land value and the building value. And I was like, holy shit. There was a friend of mine who, thank God it didn't happen when they had some sort of electrical issue. Yeah. That's what properties. And the way the wiring was set up is somebody touched the wiring, like someone went in, I forget what the complete facts were, but if their finger was offset like a quarter of an inch, the person would have been electrocuted and died right there. And then they would have gotten sued for negligence and wrongful death. And so, I mean, just like things like that, or like I've had clients who rented out a property, like California residents who rented out a property out in Jersey in a gang fight broke out, someone was shot and killed. And now that doctor is getting sued for negligence and wrongful death, you know, business deals that fall apart, partnerships that fall apart, your personal guaranteeing something for a buddy, a friend, or a family member. Yeah. Like you're just trying to be a good person going about your job yeah. and the next thing you know, you're the one getting it, you know, out back. Yeah, it's crazy. Especially that one in Jersey with like, cause it's like, yeah, yeah. you have that happen and you're the owner of the property, you're 3000 miles away. And next thing you know, you're dealing with a freaking multi seven figure lawsuit. So let's get into that. You know, you mentioned the outer layer, the best protection is the asset protection trust. And I remember from some of your podcasts you've done in the past, is you use the hybrid trust usually, and I believe it's based out of the Cook Islands, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah, so yeah, the hybrid trust is kind of the gold standard trust. And so I think a good starting point for a lot of people though, is just to uh, like work through the process of like what the hell is even a trust and then yeah. the type of trust and then why we end up with the hybrid. Because I see, like I mentioned before, a lot of misconception, uh, I get this a lot. I have a trust. I'm good, right? And it's generally like an estate plan or a land trust. It's like, no, completely different types of trust. Yeah. So yeah. think of trust like Baskin Robbins, right? Like I like to use the ice cream analogy on this because trust comes in lots of different flavors and types, just like Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors, right? So the standard one-on-one trust that everybody's familiar with came from the 60s, that family revocable living trust. Your parents have one probably, your grandparents, aunt or uncle, somebody. You know, trust don't die. So when you do, when you funded it, your assets transfer to the beneficiaries and you avoid probate and it just changed the landscape of estate planning. All right. Then you have what a lot of people in the real estate world are becoming familiar with called land trust for real estate. Yeah. Big in Florida too. Yeah. Big in Florida. And they hold your land and you connect them to an LLC. But land trusts don't have any protection in and of themselves. 
they're only as strong as the LLC that they're connected to. And so land trusts are just used for privacy, right? They're a privacy mechanism, not a protection mechanism, which is probably a shock to most people because then they realize like, okay, what happens when that LLC gets pierced? It just all falls apart. Then you have what are becoming talked about now are Delaware and Wyoming statutory trusts. But these, again, are only as strong as an LLC that they're connected to. And so once that LLC gets pierced, they have no protection. And Delaware and Wyoming statutory trusts are really used by California residents just trying to avoid the California franchise tax. So they're not an asset protection strategy. It's a tax mitigation strategy to avoid paying $800. So then if you're trying to be cheap and you just don't want to spend $800 a year, Great. But then what happens if you're getting sued for a catastrophic lawsuit and you lose all your assets? So this is where we need to start deciding what side of the fence do we care about? Do we care about tax mitigation or asset protection? Because the two are completely different. It's like oil and water. You can't call an asset protection attorney and say, hey, I want to set up asset protection. I don't want to pay any taxes. That's illegal. You got to pay your taxes and asset protection strategies are tax neutral. So if you care about tax mitigation and paying less in taxes, that's your CPA. But then realize you're going to give up on the asset protection side of it. If you care about the asset protection side of it, which most people should, protect them as strongly as you want, right? As you can, then you're going to give up a little bit maybe on the tax mitigation side because the structures are going to be tax neutral. That's where working with your CPA and wealth managers is more important because then they can start doing their job to help you accelerate your wealth by using the tax code. It's not the entities that we set up. It's just utilizing the tax code and working with your CPA. So people need to realize that distinction, okay? From there, we have higher levels of trust that you've been hearing, you know, we've been talking about. These are called asset protection trusts. And so these came down in the 1980s. And an asset protection trust is a self-settled spend thrift trust. And so what this means is created for you, by you, as your own beneficiary. And they have these really important spendthrift provisions in them. And what spendthrift provisions are, is they are provisions that allow you to protect your assets from creditors. So the actual teeth behind it. And for them to work, the trust has to be not revocable, but irrevocable. So it's a very different type of trust. And so what irrevocable versus irrevocable. Like what is the difference between that, right? The concept of irrevocability is pretty simple. Like irrevocable means any action, once it's done, it cannot be undone. So a great example of this is once you jump off a bridge, you're off, right? There's no undoing, you know, there's no going back. That's very true. Yeah. But if you have a bungee cord, it's different. It is irrevocable at the bungee cord. So as a starting point, creating irrevocable trust is just like jumping off a bridge, right? Like once it's created, revoke it. Its purpose and its terms are fixed and there's no change that are allowed. But this isn't always the case, okay? It's possible to create a trust that is irrevocable, meaning you cannot revoke the trust itself, but we still leave room for flexibility to its terms, including who the beneficiaries are and how the trust assets are distributed and even the conditions where certain actions can be made and what can be taken. So what we're doing then is theoretically, not theoretically, but what we're doing is attaching a bungee cord to portions of the trust so that we can modify them later. This is known as flexible irrevocability and the courts are completely fine with this. And then there are also ways when we started talking about like the offshore stuff and the hybrid trust, right? To use an irrevocable trust and incorporate these solid spender provisions while keeping creditors away from them and still revoking the risk of the US courts, tossing your trust away This is kind of like the Bately versus Mortison case. But what we're doing is using a very strong jurisdiction like the Cook Islands, where the courts have no jurisdictional recognition over them whatsoever. So the Cook Islands can just take the judgment literally and throw it in the trash versus a domestic court, you know, and a domestic judgment that has to be executed, it has to be adhered by. And so what we're doing is using the power of an offshore trust 
and then we bridge it back. This is called the hybrid trust. And so what we're doing is using the IRS code section 7701 for tax purposes. By complying with this code section, we're saying, hey, IRS, classify this offshore trust, the strongest trust in the world as a domestic trust for tax purposes so that we don't have to do all the 1035s and 1035As and back to disclosures. So it makes it very easy and cheaper to maintain the trust while we have all the strength in our back pocket. Yeah, you have that button you can push in case the shit hits the fan and then you're, you can flip it over to the Cook Island scenario. So let's walk through an example. So like this is, I'm just gonna like make up an example. Yeah. Landlord has the whole thing set up. They have, you know, 100 property, whatever. They got a big asset base. They have this hybrid trust. They got the limited partnership. They got the, they have the whole layer, all right? They get a doomsday lawsuit. Something bad happens, all right? And there's a huge multi-seven figure lawsuit. Their assets are at risk. Now, if we were to trigger this trust, the hybrid trust, does the assets have to be sold or can you keep the assets like in the trust name or whatever? Like, how does that work? So once you create the trust, yeah. we'll always be owning all the assets because when we break the bridge, there's no like transferring of the assets. The trust itself just owns everything. Yeah. And the generally a good question would be like, well, wouldn't breaking the bridge create a fraudulent conveyance? No, because there's no conveying of assets. The trust just owns. That's true. The trust already owns the assets. We're yeah. just now saying we're not going to comply with the IRS code section. The trust is what it is, an offshore trust at that point in time. Now, to the actual question, though, when it comes to real estate, you yeah. can't physically pick up a piece of real estate and move it somewhere, right? There's only two ways that you can protect cash value and equity in a property. One is by equity stripping it out, or two is just selling it, you know, fire mm -hmm. sell. Yeah. The worst choice is equity stripping. It's fraudulent. Courts hate it. It's getting a friendly lien. Generally, you know, yeah, I know about those. Yeah, 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 those are yeah. And so we generally advocate there's no don't go the friendly lien route. The yeah. quickest, cleanest, and fastest way is just selling the assets and then protecting the cash value. Then you can always go back and reinvest later on. Now, some clients are just like, no, I love all my assets. Like I have some sort of emotional connection to it. They're just stubborn. Fine. Then the only option we literally have is to equity strip it and put the money in a you know bank account in Switzerland connected to the bridge trust out of the US jurisdiction. So there are ways to go about it. It's just the cleanest and easiest way with real estate is to just sell it. Because again, there's only two ways to protect the real estate. It's the equity and there's only two ways to do it. Interesting. So here's my other question. This is a little bit more of an advanced question because I've you know studied up on this. If it's a hybrid trust, it's based out of the Cook Islands and it's you know domesticated in the US. If there's a default judgment, right? If like the lawsuit, the dude loses the lawsuit, right? Default judgment. Yeah. Because it's in the Cook Islands, basically they'd have to go down to the Cook Islands and like get a judge from New Zealand to fly. And like, no one's going to fucking do that. Yeah, no, correct. Yeah. So there's this insane amount of statutory hurdles. That's the power yeah. of the trust. Yeah, that's where it makes sense. Yeah. So the biggest power of it is with <laughs> non-recognition. It means the Cook Islands do not recognize any court orders or judgments throughout the world including the US. So if you had a judgment against you, a default judgment, or you went through the whole rodeo, had the judgment executed, yeah, yeah, I'm saying. you would have to take the judgment down to the Cook Islands and have it executed there. And the offshore trustee is just going to say, we don't recognize those. Here's my trash can, throw it in the trash. And then they have to start the case all over from scratch. And then they'd have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Like that's the murder standard, the 99%. <laughs> standard. They'd have to front the entire cost on their own, plus flying a judge from New Zealand. They can't get an agency fee attorney because they're not allowed down there like they are here in the US. And there's only a one-year statute of limitations. So by the time they realize oh they God. have offshore trust in play, it's too late. They've already missed their opportunity. And then we can shrink it to a one-day statute of limitations because the Cook Islands recognizes Belize trust. So we register the trust in Belize as well. And then that picks up the one-day statute of limitations.
Yeah. You know where my mind's going here, Brian? When people see this, the defendants or the plaintiff's attorney sees this, they want to fucking settle. Yeah. That's where like all of this, yeah. like yeah. we have over 3,000 clients, right? Protecting over five, maybe close to 6 billion worth of real estate now. Yeah. We've had to break these bridges over 300 times. So about 10% oh, of- shit, that's a lot. Yeah. It's Damn. a lot. I honestly think it's going to go up because of just how crazy society is becoming right now. Yeah, for sure. But out of all of those 300 times, it's never been pierced and no one's ever followed us down to the Cook Islands. And the way the phone call generally goes is, hey, I might, right? Like maybe you have a valid claim. I don't know. That's not my problem. I don't care. My clients have an offshore component to their trust. If you don't go away tomorrow, I'm going to break the bridge and you'll never see a penny. Even if you win your judgment, here's 40 years of case law and all the Supreme Court cases. Goodbye. 9.9 9.9 times out of 10, they leave and take the insurance money and we never hear from them again. That's the key, is they know. The attorney representing that person knows it's like, this is not worth it and let's just take the insurance and settle for pennies on the dollar. Because, yeah, because people don't realize like law firms are businesses. There is a profit yeah. line that a business has to make or they go out of business and then they yeah. take the shingles off the door and they fold up and go somewhere else. And so when I was doing a lot of plaintiff work back in the day, I had to look at what's how much money am I going to have to put into this case? What's the potential damage award? How collectible are they? Can I actually collect on that award? And then what's the profit margin? And if all of those don't add up, I'm not taking your case. Not worth it. Not worth it. Yeah, no, 100%. And that's where the power of this comes in because I see a lot of people, like we started the show, if you look really good on paper, that's where these attorneys can really go to town. They're like, you know, salivating dogs. But when you like have all the stuff set up, you know, they look under the hood and they're like, well, this isn't worth it. Let's just take the insurance fucking 500K and get out of there. You know, right? And it goes to the effectiveness of the trust. If the attorney suing you is looking at this and saying, I can pierce that. It's not very effective. And you're inviting the challenge for the attorney to want it in, yeah. to come in and say, once I pierce that, it's a gold mine. Versus yeah. if I look at it and say, this is going to be a nightmare. I'm going to have to spend how much to even try to get there to then just win the case, but then not collect on any damages. No, it's not worth it. And then I'm going to end up potentially damaging my profit line of the firm. No, no one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. So, you know, there's a lot of information to cover. We impact a lot in 30 minutes. So, you know, you wrote a book on this. What is the best way for people to get that book? Where can they get it? Yeah, the easiest way, just jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. Click on the pop-up that comes up on it and it'll take you straight to the book. My website as an educational resource, I have tons of case law on there, frequently asked questions. And obviously the book is going to be the most detailed information. And the book, it just breaks down the world of asset protection, the crazy world that we're living in and investing in, like how we have this broken tort system and financial system. And I explain the history of how we got here. So we understand the context of where we were, how we are now, and then how we survive this going forward from an investor side of it. Because at the end of the day, we're going to keep investing, even though the world is chaotic around us, but we're still going to keep looking for ways to you know, create that financial freedom, but we don't want to lose it. And so when we understand everything and then we understand, like we're talking about LLCs, here's the pros and cons. Here's the pros and cons of limited partnerships. Here's the pros and cons of this. Here's how we package it all together. Once you have the clarity of mind and the case law, then you can start making better decisions. Exactly. That's the key is like making money is one thing, but then protecting it is a whole nother ball of wax, as they say. I'm not buying into the bullshit of people that are just trying to sell you a bunch of crap. Yeah, like a one size fits all strategy. Oh, just get these LLCs created and you'll be good to go. That's another thing I always like thought was bullshit. Like I knew it, like, obviously it has effect to it, but like then just get an umbrella policy. Like they're $400 a year. Yeah, sure. There's a reason they're $400 a year. Read through the friggin' packet you sign and then you're like, oh, wow, no wonder it's so cheap. No, exactly. No, so it's crazy. So, and then if people wanted to, you know, reach out to you to be a client of you, btblegal.com. 
btblegal.com, shoot me an email. I do a free consultation, get some good opinion, and maybe you know we're the right vibe for each other. Maybe not. We'll go from there. Sweet. Well, 3,000 clients, you clearly know what you're doing. So we'll put that in the show notes. And Brian, I appreciate you taking time to you know unpack a lot of this stuff because we don't really have a lot of asset protection attorneys on the show. Usually it's all about making money, but this is about keeping the money and protecting the money. Oh yeah. And hopefully I made it you know easy to listen and not kind of boring. You made it very easy because I, oh, this will be bonus content, but I heard you on bigger pockets and I've heard asset protection attorney. Usually I fall asleep. And then just the way that you communicated about it with the layers and this like it all made sense to me. And I'm in a situation where like an asset protection makes sense. And then I like typed your name in on Spotify and I went down like, I listened to like 10 different episodes. And then I'm like, wait, why don't I get him on my show? So then I, I emailed you and there we go. I appreciate it, man. Cool. All right, Brian. Well, thanks, buddy. All right, absolutely.